0: This is the podcast for Faith Matters. I'm the host, John Moorhead, and I'm privileged today to have a couple of guests, one coming from all the way from Israel, uh, working uh, out the time differences here to have a conversation with us. And that first guest is Dr. Daniel Bartal, and he is a Bronco Wise Professor of Research in Child Development and Education at the School of Education at Tel Aviv University. His research interest is in political and social psychology studying sociopsychological foundations of intractable conflicts and peace building, as well as development of political understanding among children and peace education. He's worked on a, on a number of books, which uh, caught my eye, which is why we're having this conversation today, one of uh, which is Intractable Conflicts, socio-psychological Foundations of Dynamics, as well as The Role of Trust in Conflict Resolution, the Israeli-Palestinian case, and beyond. Dr. Bartolf, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's my honor. It's great to have you here, and we also have another conversation partner, a gentleman that I am privileged to work with at the Foundation for Religious Diplomacy. That's Dr. Charles Randall-Paul. He's the founder and director of the Foundation for Religious Diplomacy, where I'm privileged to sit as a board member and work on the evangelical chapter Randy does a lot of things, research, writing, speaking. He is the author of a book, Converting the Saints, a Study of Religious Rivalry in America. Randy, welcome back to the program.
1: It's a delight to be with you.
0: <laughs> well, uh, can I, should I call you Dr. Bartol or Daniel? What do you prefer? Uh, Danny, you
2: know, if you want the
0: Israeli way,
2: call me by the first name, Danny. Denny. Danny. Yeah.
0: Okay, I will try. I'll oh, try Danny to remember that. Danny. But okay. I was raised to, to be very respectful and when someone's got a PhD, it may be difficult for me, so we'll, we'll try. Um, okay. can, you, can you begin by uh, talking about how you got involved in the academic study of intractable conflict and peacemaking, what brought you into that? Okay, you know, uh,
2: I, in fact, I got my PhD in 1975 in United States and uh, had the, 74 I got. (coughs) stayed one year in postdoc and was really trained as a typical experimental social psychologist, but with one difference. I participated in University of Pittsburgh in a a specific uh, uh, program. So it is really relatively unusual as Rand uh, really uh, alluded to some extent, because it was interdisciplinary program. that so the university organized and the focus was on education at large. So I came out of, out of my uh, studying as a social educational psychologist And I began and therefore I really landed in school of education. But very quickly I realized as a participant, uh, active participant in the conflict because I uh, served in the army, I participated in wars, I I, I was officer, I am because it goes with you as a reserve. And I uh, am coming from a political uh, family where political issues were discussed. Uh, So I thought I cannot continue in uh, educational social psychology. I want to shift into really studying conflict. And I did it in 1980. So, you know, it's 40 years ago, I moved. While being in Vanderbilt, uh, uh, really visiting professor, it was a kind of opportunity. I started uh, looking at certain issues that I saw in a society that participates or takes part in a, a conflict that is very difficult to resolve.
0: So this was the beginning. Fascinating. I found uh, social psychology fascinating. I did two grants, uh, one was three years and the other was two years. And we looked at social psychology as to why evangelical Christians in America tend to have negative emotional responses to other religions and that contributes to conflict. So this background of yours in social psychology, I find very fascinating and helpful. Randy, would you share a little bit about your background in uh, how you apply social psychology to, to peacemaking and religious diplomacy?
2: Yes, very I different. I am sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. That's OK. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, OK. Right, <Run>, go on. <laughs> uh,
1: all right, Danny. I'll, I'll I'll, let you in if you want to talk. No,
2: no, no, no. It was a completely misunderstanding. Uh,
1: I think uh, I was raised uh, in, in uh, New Jersey, in the East Coast of the United States, in a very uh, mixed bag of, of religions and uh, cultures. Uh, and uh, my family was English, kind of stiff upper lip, keep the emotions inside. And when I went to, to college, uh, I, I started studying psychology. And at the end of my uh, my term in, in, I think it was my junior year, I got involved in social psychology and group therapy sessions. And back in the sixties, For a a person who had emotions on the inside, uh, I was completely moved. It it was a life-changing experience for me to study group process where people exposed their motives, their fears, their their experiences together in a group, in a small group. It had to be a small group. And I realized that influenced me deeply in my life as I saw people uh, take risks uh, in trust uh, in a small group that changed their attitudes about each other without necessarily changing the opinions of each other. They had different feelings and attitudes of trust even though they didn't agree. And that was a a fundamental realization in my life that later on, I, I went into business for many years and then went back midlife to get a degree at the University of Chicago to study intractable, but I like to call it unresolvable, which is different than intractable. Intractable conflict can be resolved, as as Danny Bartal has told, told us in his book, it's very difficult, but it can come to some resolved conclusion. Unresolvable conflict, by definition, cannot be resolved. It is a conflict that by its very nature has to the, the party One party or the other has to convert to see the world in a different way, which is not a resolution of the conflict. It just, it, it, the, one, the two teams are no longer two teams, they become one team, right? And I was very interested in the pluralizing world that we're in, where it's very unlikely that everyone's going to convert to one worldview. Everyone's going to convert to one religion. And so it's not only intractable It's unresolvable in in its current state, no matter how much we reframe the issue. I like to say, um, when you get into deep uh, conversations with people, you really come to understand and trust each other. You then know why you should be opponents. (laughs) There are are issues that if you're honest (coughs) and authentic, you should be rivals over what the truth is, what reality is. And I like to, as John and I talk about, we talk about trustworthy rivalry, where you sustain a relationship that is close to friendship, but maintains the rivalry. And that became, um, for, for me, a political model, as well as an economic model, as well as an interreligious model of new possibilities. And I'm intrigued with Danny Bartal's work of education and how you educate people to see as possible and even desirable to have trustworthy opponents or trustworthy rivals in their lives in their societies and i think this is this is the the great vision of change that we have is not to resolve conflicts but to find ways for people to see conflict as part of their religion and 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 to shift from anger and fear to appreciation and at the same time, true engagement of persuasion, where you're trying to change each other's points of view. So uh, that's my background and uh, I'm really happy to have this conversation.
0: Danny, what kinds of uh, research projects and examples have you looked at specifically and drilled down into in terms of intractable conflicts?
2: Uh, you know, it's interesting. I will talk about it, uh, but it will be an interesting discussion also with one, because I have a difficulty to accept that conflicts are by nature unresolvable because when you look, when what did happen, you know, conflicts that you wouldn't believe that will be resolved, not only, but the participants believes that it is unresolved, eventually it is resolved. If we take Northern Ireland, Basque uh, country, Algiers together with France, we take uh, Southern African conflict, uh, Salvadorian conflict, Guatemalan conflict, eventually were resolved. So the question is really, what is the difference between the ones that are resolved and ones that are not resolved. And especially that we know also that some of the unresolved were very close to be resolved like the conflict between Turkey, uh, Turks and uh, Kurds almost was resolved and for some reason or the conflict in Cyprus. And our conflict, you know, Israeli-Palestinian was almost resolved and eventually it escalated. So the question is why uh, some were resolved and some were not resolved. And therefore I prefer uh, not to put in a such a strong way, a term unresolved because they can be resolved. And here I would like also to relate to what you said, because I also, and, and I believe that this is my contribution to political uh, social psychology. You called it uh, in centered the way religion, but before you said, talked about ideology. I prefer the word ideology or religion as kind of, because it is religion, you know? I, uh, uh, you know, I am used to say, that so in order to change the view of what we call hawkish Israeli or Jew to change his or her view about the conflict, it is as difficult as coming to, let's say, ultra-Orthodox Jew, you know what I'm talking about, and telling him one day, you know, I have news for you. And you have to change your view. There is no God. Will you succeed? No. So it is very difficult and we can obviously extend what is so, why and what is so difficult. So we just identified the term ideology, religion. I talk about ethos, I talk about culture. And here is a point. You exactly, as in religion, become a I don't, I don't want to use the word, but indoctrinated. Is it nice? Okay, will you accept it? Into particular view, a view of seeing a conflict. And it begins very early. And again, my unique contribution is that I went to children four five years old and investigated to see how do they view the rival and how do they view the ethos, the religion. And what I identify, that already in the very early age, kids, Jewish kids in Israel get this vision and they believe in it, absolutely believe in, let's say, uh, goals of justifying the conflict, dehumanization of the Palestinians, viewing themselves in a glorifying uh, uh, terms, believing that they are the sole conflict, uh, sorry, sole victims of the conflict, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and it's extremely difficult to change when it's not only schools, but you have. Really, messages by leaders, mass media, ceremonies, the whole culture that supports this type, accepting your view, religion. It becomes a religion in a certain way. So, this is at the moment a situation in Israel in 2021 where about 60, 70% of the Jewish, Israeli Jews really uh, believe exactly in this framework that I just introduced. But in 90s was a very different situation. Many of us believe that we are marching towards resolution of the conflict. In 93, 94, you know, this was a line and then you know you have to analyze what did happen that we changed the route and moved into escalation of the conflict. And I studied why did it happen, Why did it succeed in a very recent book that was published in Hebrew for the Israeli audience. And, and this is a story that we are at the moment in a very different place from where we
1: were in nineties. This is uh, a great uh, story that you've just told us of of how over a period of 30 years, significant changes can occur, which disproves my thesis that there are unresolvable conflicts. And I understand that. And so let me just say this. Uh, I came at this view um, from the standpoint of reading mythic and religious texts that create the backstory for the ethos of a culture. And these texts, although we know as scholars, they can be reinterpreted. In many cultures, they are not to be interpreted. They they come as if they're self-interpreted. They come as if they're the story of the truth with a big T, right? And those are the stories that create the attitudes and expectations about conflict in this world. To be blunt, if God can create a flood to genocide the entire earth, or, or <laughs> if God can, uh, tell, or God can tell Joshua, to go in and wipe out the men, women, and children, and the animals. Um, the, every religion has a story about conflict between good and evil, and 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 where they, their, the people, the tribe, fits into that story. And those stories are very difficult to critique and change. Those are the one, that's why I like to call those stories are not for compromise. Those stories have to somehow remain firm or, or people lose the feeling of, a, of, a, a, of solidity that they want in their lives. And so I, I agree with you completely, many conflicts can be resolved, but the way we talk about it is we say, there's a contest between worldviews that is ongoing.
2: Absolutely.
1: That, that Absolutely. so far has not been resolved and will likely not be resolved. And that contestation of worldviews is what we focus on. In many cases, it really does affect the actual conflicts that are political and on the ground. Many cases, it doesn't. We're not trying to reduce it all to one thing, but I wanted to make that distinction so you can see we really agree with you in many respects for everything you're doing. Um, But there is this other aspect that we deal in that is, that is profound and it won't change in 30 years, right? It, it, it is that there, there usually views of it might change, but having said that, I, I must ask you this question. In doing this book, your last book, did you come up with any data that you can share with your our audience on what changed in 30 years in Israel to, to take it from a, a point in 1990 where the majority of the people were thinking that it was possible to have some kind of a friendly relationship with the uh, Palestinians to where it is today. What what changed?
2: Well, okay. (laughs) Now, just on this question, we can uh, spend, you know, half a day. But okay, I will put the focus on uh, two processes which are related to what you just said. I, I, a little bit, I would start because in every religion there are parts that can be pro peace, and you know talk about empathy towards other. In Jewish religion, in Islam, in Christianity, uh, with all the differences. So and and so the question is, how does it happen? So a particular uh, sector within the religion takes over as it does happen, uh, or did happen in Israel. So the Orthodox uh, and ultra-Orthodox Zionists took over the monopoly of religion. Because you know, for example, remember Heschel, the one that was uh, uh, obviously marching with Martin Luther King, and he had completely different view of what is Judaism. And even in Israel, within the orthodox system, we had rabbis like Rabbi Liechtenstein, Amital, so had very different view from the establishment. And i just give you a, a, an interesting anecdote. Uh, I, when I was uh, teaching one day, a student came to me. She was a, a, Muslim, a Muslim, and she said, can I write for you a word? How Islam is propagating peace. And she wrote a view really based on obviously uh, uh, writings of uh, Muhammad, uh, Quran, et cetera, making her point how the religion is really supporting peacemaking, conflict resolution, et cetera, et cetera. I read the paper, I don't know Quran didn't know what to do, you know, it was very convincing. So so I went to a friend, colleague, who is expert on the Quran, and showed him the work, you know, the paper, and I asked, you know, what do you think? And he said to me, it's a very nice work, selecting the particular verses that really support what you wanted to say, but I can give you another hundred that will support the opposite view so this is the lessons that i learned uh, kind of uh, <laughs> you know uh, that you can bring all and even in jewish religion in in uh, 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 my present book i brought all kind of verses uh, from talmud and mishnah where the support is for being compassionate from being empathic to the other etc etc But now going to the story, our story. I I believe uh, in order to focus on two problems. One I already noted, that the religion is uh, uh, in Israel uh, very hawkish. And the more religious you were, this is the best predictor for your political orientation. If the more religious you are, the more hawkish you are. And this is correlation goes to 0.7, absolutely very high. And it is the best predictor of your view. This happened because of one, of two important developments. One, demography. So the ultra-orthodox have 11 children, eight, eight children, et cetera where secular Jews have two, three, maximum four. And what happens is the ultra-Orthodox, the the ones that uh, I assume you know, uh, were for many decades out of internal and external politics. They had one interest, you know, the benefits for their community. But in the 80s, Later they started to move to earthy politics and they moved into really hawkish views which were to some extent strange in the community, but they became, and today, 2021, they are part of the hawkish uh, coalition in Israel. So, you know, we are in big crisis, had four election, but they stand with Netanyahu uh, really at hoc. They don't move from there. Supporting the hawkish view of Netanyahu, whereas in 70, 80s, they were working with the uh, Labour Party. With, uh, so it's big change. In fact, in the coalition of Rabin, he had one of the orthodox, orthodox uh, ultra-orthodox fact, fraction, of, uh, of this sector, it changed dramatically. But the most important uh, factor is what I differentiate between major events and the framing of major events, which means that the uh, uh, citizens of the state do not have an access to events. How did, did they happen, right? They don't know. Someone has to tell them what is going on, who is responsible, how did it happen? And, and the story is that uh, our leaders framed the failure of Camp David uh, meeting with Clinton in 2000 and the outbreak of the rebellion in the in 2000 and the disengagement in 2005 from Gaza Strip, in completely different way, how did they happen? In making it sure, Eud sure, Barak, who was in Ken David in Marafat, came out and said, Now I can say Zotai was searching for peace in every corner and corner, and I found. That Palestinians cannot be trusted because they want to annihilate Israeli Jews. And this was a message that if you will come and, and talk with this average Israeli, they will repeat the story. It's not true. It's not true. And then came the second event when the Intifada started in September, 2000. Again, he said, this is an indication. It was instigated, fueled by Arafat, and he wanted violence and to achieve independence through violence. It's not true. So give me, and again, you will ask average Israeli, he will repeat the story. And it was so convincing because Eud Barak was a leader of the peace scheme. So when the leader of the peace scheme comes with such a message, it is accepted as a very valid and reliable. But, you know, people, you know, we know that leaders sometimes mismanage lie etc cetera, etc cetera, for various reasons that it's even difficult to understand so this particular events started to turn away people from dovish camp and center camp from their opinion into hawkish opinions And in 2000 2002 2004 was really critical period which I, I, you know, studied. I saw it against my eyes how the movement goes on. And today we have the result. So as I told you, 70% of the Israeli Jewish population are hawks. About 15% will be doves and the rest
1: will be center. Do you, uh, John, I don't want to... Oh, uh, no, you're
0: uh, fine, Randy. Um,
1: Danny, how does an orthodox, ultra-orthodox Jew talk to himself or herself in the story they have uh, about being hawkish? What are the religious reasons they have for being hawkish?
2: It's a basic story. You see, the basic story that ultra orthodox harayim, as we call them, had for years that, uh, which comes from diaspora. That we do not want to, uh, how would they say, to anger the uh, goyim, you know, to anger the non-Jews. This was, you know, it came from exile and this was one of the way of survival, that we have our communities, but we don't want to fight with the state, Poland, Russia, France, United States, etc. They came to Israel with the same idea. And I—I I, what I am telling you is on the basis, not only research, but personal talks that I had in the 80s. This was the slogan, but, Eventually, what did happen? The idea of Earth Israel belonging only to Jews penetrated deep into these uh, uh, sectors. And even with time... And just one second. Uh, and even uh, uh, in, in the, let's say, beginning of 2000, there was a, a kind of disagreement between the chief rabbis who were the leaders of the com- uh, ultra-orthodox community and the people who really started to move through being influenced by press, through internet that slowly penetrated, and television that started to penetrate messages. And... Uh, And there was a gap. And the rabbis at the top understood that in order to be leaders, they have to be also followers of of their camp. You know, they cannot go here and they will go there. And the rabbis today are very hawkish, very hawkish. And also you have to understand, which is very important, that when we talk about Orthodox community is very heterogeneous. So you have ultra-Orthodox and you have Zionist Orthodox. Those are the settlers that brought the ideology of a whole Israel. And they were the ones that already in 1970, end of 60s even, began settling the West Bank. And they were really uh, uh, the, if you want, you know, the pioneers that moved the nation into this direction. It all started with several dozens, and today we have four hundred sixty-five thousand settlers in the West Bank, and about two hundred thousand settlers in East Jerusalem. And the situation is as such that I cannot imagine that a leader, as it happened in Algiers, that, you know, remember what happened there, that the Gaulle left them and they started to return back to France. He didn't want to give them any protection. But in Israel, I cannot see any leader at the moment that will give the order of withdrawing from the West Bank in, as it happens now.
0: If you are enjoying this podcast, please consider becoming a part by sharing on social media, clicking like, and visiting our patrons page and website donation page. You can find the links on the program notes and YouTube comments. Thank you for your partnership. Now back to the program. Uh,
1: the complexities of Orthodox Judaism, especially in, in Israel, is there, there, there is a rumor, at least among Christians, that Orthodox Zionists actually see Israel expanding all the way to the Euphrates. In other words, the idea of Israel is not just a political place, but it's, it, it's all of the Levant. You know, is that, is that, in, is that the map, that the future map that's in the minds of many uh Jews, uh, Zionist Jews, is that a fact, or is that
2: just a rumor? You know, it's not only a, a, a vision of a Zionist Orthodox, but this was a vision of a revisionist party, Jabotinsky before 48, you know, of having what we called two banks, the Eastern and the Western bank which means that they view Jordan as a kind of belonging to the Jewish nation, because remember that on the uh, Eastern Bank, there were two tribes, Ephraim and Menashe. So it's part of the land promised by God. But with time, obviously, uh, Jews uh, kind of compromised, in order to get what they wanted. But remember one thing, Jews never established an international border. The Green Line was a ceasefire line of 1949, which was negotiated in Rhodos. So the leaders always thought that maybe, there will be an opportunity to extend Israel. And the opportunity came in 1967. So from this time, when Israel won really decisively what we call six-day war, you know it was clear that Israel will never relinquish the control over at least parts, of the West Bank, including the Jordan Valley and Eastern Jerusalem. But with time, the appetite was rose and rose and the governments, which were mostly uh, from the right wing, uh, supported this idea until we came to the idea in summer that you know, almost there was annexation formal annexation, which was approved by Trump and only what we call the peacemaking with Emirates and Bahrain and Sudan and Morocco stopped the intention of, uh, because this was a deal that you get full relationship instead of annexation, but it was on, on the table beginning formal annexation but we have to understand that there is informal annexation because palestinians are kicked out from the land continuously and israel builds continuously uh, settlements and you know so it's informally it is annexed and just uh, you know uh, a week ago the Human uh, Rights Watch said formally that Israel is apartheid because you cannot look differently where half of the population have rights, Jews, and half of the population has not rights between the river and the sea.
1: The, uh, to be uh, just, to, just to get a little bit more precise. Um, is there a religious vision of a large, of a, of a significant number of, of Israelis that if Israel could, it would expand much more into Jordan and beyond? That is, that is the divine right, if you will, of uh,
2: minority run. It's minority. Where is minor. at the moment the struggle is over the West Bank. Uh, and mostly less about Gaza, because Gaza uh, is not considered part of the Holy Land. You know, these teams were there.
1: Okay, thank you. John, thank you for allowing (laughs) me to... I I, I have deposed our visitor, you now may have your...
0: (laughs) No, you're just fine, Randy. I've enjoyed listening to the conversation. Danny, you mentioned uh, the, the percentages, the number of hawks versus the doves amongst the Israeli population. In America, you've tended to have conservative Christians who've been very strong, very hawkish, very strongly supportive of Israel. But there's been something of a demographic shift towards younger Christians that are having more concern for the rights of Palestinians. How does that compare to what's going on in Israel? Are you starting to see a demographic shift or are younger Israelis still hawkish? On the contrary, Mm.
2: John, what I see, we all see, is really that, uh, uh, you know, I just completed a very big study uh, among Palestinians about Jews financed by the European Union. And uh, we find that on every indicator or every indice, the younger Jews are more hawkish, than older Jews. So this is the direction. They become more religious, more hawkish, as a community. Now you will ask why. One of the reasons, as we noted before, is the education system. You know, uh, people are born, individuals are born into particular reality. Giving you one example. In 1972, a minister decided who was a minister uh, coming from the Labour Party, from so-called leftist party, decided to erase the green line. So all the maps in Israel, all the maps are without green line. Now imagine a child where in his class, her class, there is a map, geographical map of Israel, without green line and the image, that so the child grows with is so that this, this land is Jewish land. And I can tell you a small anecdote because uh, I don't give a political, a political soci- socialization in the hands of the school or educational system because I know how does it work and what is the influence. So I take personal responsibility to educate my children. And I have a daughter who is uh, now 19 years old. And in the fourth grade, a teacher comes, it's a real story, with a map. And And she says, the teacher says, this is state of Israel. And my daughter, who really is very smart and intelligent, raises her hand and says, no teacher, no, this is not state of Israel. You may say that it's an Israel country, land, but it's not state because it doesn't have the green line. The teacher says to her, uh, Galia, this is her name, you cannot be political in, in the class. Can you imagine? (laughs) So this is a story. It is a small anecdote, but this explains what has happened. So children, as I already told you, I studied the young children in kindergarten. Then you have elementary school. People don't talk in home about, you know, Eretz Israel. You know, they don't. People talk about issues, other issues. Then you go to high school. And then you go to the army, where the army goes into West Bank, right, etc. So you come out of the system really hawkish. You know, this is a story. And educa- and, and for and then the educational system, for example, uh, uh, for me, from various NGOs, which uh, are related to uh, let's say uh, watching human rights etc cetera, etc cetera, to enter the schools there is a, a, a really instruction coming directly from the minister of education so does not allow them to enter schools because why because he doesn't want he's coming from the rightist a party, he doesn't want the children will get alternative information about violation of human rights, about oppression, about uh, possibilities of making peace. This is the story. So uh, you know, run you know, if you follow how interesting is, let's say, in the Cyprus conflict, that uh, the Turkish community and Greek community, I was there a number of times, decided to, to break the rule by the Minister of Education and prepare their own textbooks, which try to coordinate, synchronize the collective memory of uh, Turkish Cyprus and Greek Cyprus. So it will be some kind of a, a basis for a possibility of reconciliation.
0: I want to get one more question in then, Randy. I'm quite happy to turn it over to you for what time we have left. One of the things that's fascinating to me about uh, your research is uh, the significance of emotions in conflict. We've talked about narrative and framing, and connected to that is strong emotional attachment. So in the American context, we have this Christian nationalism, and conservative Christians grab onto that narrative and that framing and then attach great emotional investment which then oftentimes results in uh, negative perceptions of and relations with uh, minority religious traditions. Um, you talked about framing as it go- is going on in Israel there. In, in your book, uh, Intractable Conflicts, you've got a chapter called Collective Emotional Orientations. Can you talk about some of the emotional connections to this process of, of these intractable conflicts?
2: Of course. You know, uh, the most important is fear, which when you talk about Jewish population, obviously it's related very much to Holocaust. And there's a slogan, so Holocaust can happen anytime. It is timeless. It is not related to particular group because in the past those were Greek, those were Persian, those were Egyptian, those were German, And now we have Palestinians and Arabs. So and and at the moment, as you know, Iranians, uh, Netanyahu is obsessed with Iranians. And so there is all the time talk about possible war, which is very threatening uh, experience. Wars are really very threatening by, by nature. So you have fear which is, you know, we say that we are a nation uh, with chronic trauma and chronic fear. And it's true because we assess and we see fear is probably one of the most important factor in the psychological, uh, if I will say, process that is going on with regard to the conflict. But you have also hatred. That goes on about thirty percent of Israeli Jews, uh, in spite of the fact that uh, uh, declaring hatred is not acceptable in, in, in the current let's say uh, societal discourse. Still, thirty percent declares so that they hate Arabs, they hate Palestinians. You find very, you know, often in Israel, death to Arabs, death to Arabs. And uh, again, you know returning even uh, in the school of my daughter, uh, s- students were talking about death to Arabs, not understanding even the meaning. And teacher did not intervene, you know, did not take did not uh, take action about such a saying. But you see slogans written on walls, Death to Palestinian, which is hatred, anger, obviously you have Uh, a strong feeling. So emotion is very, very much connected to narratives that we call cognitive parts. And and the cognition, as we call it, and uh, the emotions are interrelated. Emotions obviously raise uh, cognition, and cognition raise emotion. And you cannot talk separately but they are very interwoven psychological reactions.
0: Randy, turn it over to you for our few remaining moments.
1: Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, this is Void. This should be a two hour session. <laughs> Dan, Danny, I hope you'll come back and talk to us again because this has been a very rich conversation. I feel like we are learning so much from you. Um, it's so easy to presume Uh, from newspaper reports and even books that we are understanding what's going on in Israel and in the Palestinian situation. And I can tell from this conversation that the subtleties are really very important to grasp and we don't have them here. But uh, let me just end end by a quick question. If you were to prompt um, Netanyahu, Netanyahu, to to talk to a group of influential Palestinians do you think he could do you think he could ask this question um, and then have a, a reciprocal question What could we do to, to build trust with you? What would change your attitude of fear and even hatred? What could we do? And then if with, with the Palestinians ask, what could we do in a practical way that would change Israelis' lack of trust for us, their, their fear of us and their hatred for us? Just tell us, what could we actually do? What do you think the answers would be to those questions in terms of practical- Man, well, you would not believe,
2: I, I can send you a, a paper Uh, of my uh, thesis, a master thesis of my student who studied trust. And she (laughs) interviewed uh, Palestinians and uh, Jews and asked exactly this question about (laughs) exactly. So you can see what they responded. But you know, this question can be on a kind of ideological way. So someone will say, the a will say, stop the occupation. Stop the occupation, I will be able to trust you. Israeli will say, stop violence, and I will be able to trust you. But this is, you know, obviously on such a level. I, I in fact, you know, following uh, the studies that I just told you, so we completed to analyze uh, two weeks ago, and I have unbelievable data, I found, in this study, that the distrust is extremely deep. In other words, the best predictor of the distrust is the psychological repertoire of Jews, that they acquire it very early in very early age. And just today, I mean, it's a kind of terrible time I had. talk with my ex-students, they are now professors, exactly about this issue. What we can do in order to raise, raise uh, uh, what we can do in order to uh, change the view. And one of the, you know, answers that I think personally, that we have to intervene with in the educational system, in very early age, we have to begin to change the views that the moment they grow up with, in order to change. It is extremely difficult to change views of adults that so, you know it's well entrenched. You know, giving you example, let's say of my in-laws, he's a rightist and he will say the following statements that he does. He say. I am ready to for the withdrawal from the West Bank. I am even ready to give up East Jerusalem, and then comes the but. But you know, Arabs—they are violent inherently. I cannot trust them. It's all about this. Is a story. This is a story. People have really very negative stereotyping, which is all the time imparted, propagated by the leaders. It is absolutely normative, institutionalized, that members of the parliament, Knesset, that the ministers talk in dehumanizing way, and it is written in newspapers, it's heard about Palestinians, about Palestinians. So when you have such a climate, it's very difficult to fight against, fight against it. Very
0: difficult,
1: very difficult. But do, uh, Danny, do send uh, John and me uh, that paper on trust. Uh, that uh, that we, I think that would be a very interesting piece of current social psychology that we'd like to know about. Uh, it would be helpful okay. in our work.
2: I will send you you two pieces kind of, it's a book that John mentioned. So I will send you the final conceptual paper and I will send you this particular chapter that is very interesting. You will hear what Israelis say about how we can build trust.
0: Well, unfortunately gentlemen, we're we're coming close here to the the close of an hour together. I, I echo, what Randy said previously, uh, it's been a rich conversation, and I, I hope we can do it again. I also hope we can keep in touch when we're not having podcast conversations. Uh, I don't know if there would be any cooperative possibilities between the Foundation for Religious Diplomacy and what you're doing there, but uh, uh, that would uh, be wonderful. Uh, Randy, you want to share some of the things that you've done in the yes, past in that region? Yes,
1: uh, again, I don't want to go too far on, on time, but I agree. Uh, Danny, I can tell you would be a fine interlocutor uh, for some of the conversations that we're now having. We finally penetrated into Iran and are having uh, very solid conversations based on theological and religious, ideological worldview issues that have deeply affected the politics in Iran. And we we have not been able to find an Israeli to join in that conversation because they're too afraid, I think, of the current political situation. Uh, I actually had a friend who, who, who said he's worried about his job at a university that he actually just got into a conversation with an Iranian. So I don't know if you have the guts to, to <laughs> go forward and try to do something like that. But, uh, and uh, you know, I'd love to talk to you more about bringing you with your perspective of social psychology and actual history on the ground and sensitivity to religion into a conversation with some of our other parties that are trying to make a difference broadly in the Middle East, um, bringing that aspect into the conversation. So um, offline, you might tell us whether you're willing to do that. I
2: would be very happy. You know, (laughs) I, I... I mean, it's you know I am you know just uh, in my country uh, because one you know again the framing is unbelievable uh, important for understanding and uh, the right, rightists succeeded in at least two arenas. One, they succeeded to erase the concept of occupation. It's it's not used. So when you talk with an Israeli, he will say occupation. It means that he is on the left side, what we call Dovish side, immediately Dovish side. The second one is to delegitimize the uh, leftist or Dovish people as being traitors and unloyal. So I really uh, never gave up my views, published books, uh, wrote articles, you know, 25 books, never gave up and will never give up uh, my freedom of thinking, my freedom of expression. So I am with you.
1: <laughs> you understand very much the intra-religious diplomacy that must precede inter-religious diplomacy. The idea of being a traitor is so Endemic to all of our religious tribes, and it's 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 really hurting things in Iran now. It's very hard for anybody to say anything in Iran without being labeled a traitor, right? So you understand that you're very empathetic. With no, him. I
2: mean, if I, we have uh, three minutes, John, I will tell a ve- very nice story. Yes, please do. Yeah. Okay, it's a very nice story. Is that in Israel? Uh, I don't know if you know Condoleezza Rice assembled the heads of the religions in this region together, which means from the Christian side, but you know, we have Catholics and we have uh, Orthodox Greek, etc. then Muslim uh, and Jews. And she has her chief rabbis. She assembled them and brought them to Washington. And they started, you know, to talk. And I participated, by the way, in some of their meetings in Jerusalem. But then they started to argue who is inciting more. So the Arabs said Jews are inciting. Jews say, no, 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 you are inciting. So Condoleezza Rice decided to carry a study, definitive study of analyzing Israeli and Palestinian textbooks. The job was given to Yale and Yale got the money and recruited one Palestinian who built a team, and me, your uh, uh, your friend, as being an Israeli uh, who also built a team, and this is what we did. But Israel didn't want to collaborate and participate in the study. Eventually, we did the study, and what we found that really there is no strong dehumanization uh, by Palestinians or by Israeli textbook. You know, no major difference as Israelis always claim. So I was labeled as a traitor, unloyal Israeli, and the minister didn't want to approve the study. So Palestinians agreed, and they wanted to set a committee to, to really examined the textbooks, but the Israeli minister of education really did not want to cooperate with the Palestinian minister, of, but he blamed me for the results of the study as being an idiot and, and unloyal, etc., etc. So this is a story about interreligious, and it broke out. Eventually, the group that was meeting after Condoleezza Rice did not was not reconvened again.
1: Wow, <laughs> we we humans are so stupid sometimes.
2: <laughs> Absolutely, it was a very nice remark.
1: It's, a, it's enough to make me be, become
0: a Calvinist to believe we're all depraved. <laughs> <laughs> At least part of the time, maybe not total depravity, but. Uh... Well, I'm encouraged by the conversation and uh, the contacts that we've made here and the possibilities, gentlemen. Unfortunately, we'll need to draw this episode to a close. Uh, I am uh, John Moorhead. I'm the, the host of the Faith Matters podcast. My guests today have been Daniel Bartow, coming from uh, Israel, and uh, Randall Paul, coming from our state of Utah here. Gentlemen, thank you so much for this rich and deep conversation. Thank you very thank much. Thank you very much. And uh, if you've enjoyed this podcast, we encourage you to, to share it with others on social media. You can like it uh, on our YouTube page. And, of course, you can uh, give it a star rating on whatever podcast forum you happen to be uh, using to, uh, to listen to the podcast. And, of course, we're a nonprofit organization at uh, the Evangelical Chapter of the Foundation for Religious Diplomacy. If you like what we're doing, please consider supporting our work. Again, John Moorhead for the Faith Matters podcast. Thanking everyone for listening and for watching.